Welcome to Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight. I'm your host, Shammer. Tonight, we're going to talk about the number one subject I get asked the most, not just on YouTube, on the Gray Man Concepts, but also when I train people locally in the community and when I train people in the military. And that is, how can I get better at situational awareness? Typically, the question goes beyond understanding just what it is and wanting actual practical examples. A lot of information out there you can see on YouTube, but if you're going to look this up, I suggest doing a Google search to read articles um, and find some examples of exercises you can do on your own to increase your awareness of your surroundings. Now, like any exercise or anything you do, if you do this for a hobby, that's okay. But if you're really wanting to get better at this, I encourage you to take it seriously and take notes and keep track of what you do with your exercise to get through your progress. Some of these do seem silly, but they're actual legit exercises that help you out. If you try them once or twice, you think that's cool and you don't do it again, you're not really going to increase your awareness, but it might be a fun thing for you to do. So as I give you some examples and stories tonight, we're going to start kind of small. These are actual fun things you can do with your kids in some situations um, if you want to. So the first one is a good exercise to do if you're being very physically active. Now you could do this simply when you're working out, but that might be a little too strenuous. I would do it minor yard work, maybe just working around the house. You can do it just sitting there, but it's not necessarily going to be quite as effective unless you're doing, say, long-distance driving. So what we're going to do is assess our body's hydration level. How we do this is we consider how we feel now, and we start at levels of hydration and dehydration. So the first thing we're looking for is a dry mouth, one of the first signs of dehydration. So what you do is you estimate how long till you start to get dry mouth if you continue doing what you're doing right now, whatever that is. Say you're mowing the lawn, you could do it hitting the gym, but you might get the dry mouth pretty quickly. And you try to assess to figure out what your body's capable of. This is actually a good exercise to do for people that are outdoors a lot. Or let's say you're not outdoors a lot, but then you like to go outdoors for exercise or take the family for the weekend or go camping or something. And you're in a different environment and you tend to be a little more physically active than you are normally, which some people are in that situation. It's a good way to assess your ability and keep track of your own body and what you're capable of doing. Now, of course, to figure this out, you'd actually have to continue doing that until you get dry mouth. So please have water, hydration materials available, but time yourself and figure it out. And then keep track of this information, especially as the weather changes or the situation changes, or perhaps how you're feeling on a specific day changes. Now, if you're curious why we would do this, or maybe this seems simple, think about a person who works out. Somebody that swims, maybe they run, play sports, or lift weights. Cardio, kickboxing, some sort of activity. The longer they do it, the more they learn about themselves. Sure, they go in, they hit the weights, they run. Some of them have logbooks where they keep track of their progress, which is a good idea, especially if they're tracking food intake or how they're feeling that day or how they've done in their last um, workout. You can do the same thing. It's just try doing this every day for a while. People who exercise learn enough about their body, even if they're not really keeping written track of it, to know that based on the weather today, how I'm feeling, um, the speed I'm holding on the run, if they were to pick up a weight and not see the number but feel it in their hand, have a general sense of an idea of how many repetitions they can do or the speed they can run or, or how far or how long they can run at this pace. And this is just another aspect of way of doing this. So if you're somebody who works out or understands that concept from exercise in your own body, this will be an easier exercise for you to learn and get used to. 
Now, while there are other exercises, part of the reason that we want to start out with something like this is the whole gray man thing. Like I discussed in the last one, giving a little background where the gray man comes from with espionage and how they'd get sent to another country or a hostile environment or what we call an unwitting environment, which is W-I-T-T-I-N-G. You can look that up to see what witting and unwitting is. That it's all about safety and survival. They would have a mission, something they're supposed to do, whatever it is. They might be somewhere temporarily. It might be there long term. But when something happens, planned or unplanned, one of the things they have to do is assess escapes if they don't have any plan for where they're at, um, find weapons, find survival materials, assess the threat, and get out of there. Now, the thing is, if you're in an unexpected situation where you're not totally prepared for it, even if it only lasts for a few hours, you have to get out of there. And if the only thing you have is your body, the first thing you need to know and understand is how your body works. Think about in the last show I talked about Jason Bourne movies and how there's a documentary discussing some of the things in there that are somewhat realistic based on guys at that level, the few that there are. And there's a scene, he goes into this diner with the girl and discusses all these things I know and I don't know why I know them. And one of the things he says is he knows that at that altitude, he says something like, I can do a quarter mile or half mile sprint um, full pace at this altitude. He knows his body's capable of that. It's because the training that you get is to say, based on my body's current level of conditioning and the environment I in, I know I can do this, this much, this long, with or without food or water, in order to get to my next place or my next stop or my next safe location to continue escaping, evading, or doing whatever I need to do. Now, to put this in everyday practice, down in Arizona, one of the things that uh, I learned when I moved down here, when I was first actually here in the military uh, 10, 12 years ago, was to keep water in my car. Where I came from in the country, that was just not something you did. I mean, yeah, you might pick up some water or bring some drinks with you if summertime came around, but summertime for me was 72 degrees. Wintertime here is 72 degrees in some cases. So you'd keep water in your car. So a practical example would be getting stuck on the interstate in the center of Arizona, somewhere between Tucson and Phoenix, the hottest areas in the southwest in Arizona, and your vehicle breaks down, and it's the middle of the summer, it's in July, and you've got an exit you know is within a mile, mile and a half that you feel. I could walk a mile, a mile and a half, and that's all you're thinking, the distance. But you don't know the exit or you're not exactly sure how much farther would I have to go to find resources such as water. So based on what you're physically capable of doing, if you add in this idea of those current situations, that elevation, the heat and the weather and what it's going to do to your body, you're going to know whether or not you can actually make that trek safely without passing out with um, no water if you don't have any in your vehicle. Hikers happen to them all the time down here in Arizona and in the Southwest. We hear every year one or more cases in Arizona and other places where somebody dies in the mountains in the spring or summer that are hikers. Not all the time that they're in great shape. Sometimes they're people that probably shouldn't be out there in the first damn place, but sometimes they're people that are hikers. They do this all the time. There's been people that have written for magazines. Some people just hike all the time, go a few miles. They're wearing their workout clothes. For starters, they have no survival items because they never even contemplate the fact they could get stuck out there and what happens in the winter or what happens at night in the summer and how cold it can get. And sometimes they take far less water than they should. One of the things I did in the military is I used to make us drink a quart every hour, which seemed excessive, and it was, but it was to get the idea across hydration, where when I was in the Middle East and Iraq, in the wintertime, with the amount of gear and equipment we were using inside those vehicles, 
I was drinking four to five liters of water a day if I didn't do anything but ride around and walk around just because of the gear and the length of time and all the stuff that was going on out there. So then you get these guys that think of themselves as professional hikers. They go out there, one or two bottles of water, and they get stuck or they get hurt and they run out of water and they die because they don't really know what their body's capable of. So you take this exercise of just saying, what's it take for my body to get dry mouth? You'll start to, one, recognize signs of dehydration. Also, you'll get to know some minor things, little things about your body to start learning other things. And then you'll sip the water, you'll stay hydrated. The next step is just to add on anything else. How long can I go until my tummy grumbles? How long until I feel like I'm really starving? You can do that, but that could take days. But a better way to go is based on the foods I'm eating and my environment or my environmental change, how long till I notice that I'm feeling lightheaded? or that I'm feeling a little dizzy. Anything that's out of the ordinary, abnormal, even if you know you can get through it, like I normally just push through this, but you don't realize that it might be unsafe, or the ego kicks in, because you're like, well, I get a little dizzy and a little lightheaded, but you know, I'm right next to the house, I'm gonna chop some more wood, and then I'm gonna go in there and do my thing. Instead, pay attention to that, and figure out where your body's level of conditioning is. Now, another thing you can do that also goes in line with hydration to help your body survive longer is think about, for what I'm doing now, especially if I'm outsized or I'm being strenuous, uh, this discounts physical exercise because you will sweat, and this is about sweating. At what pace or what level of activity can I continue doing this without sweating? Reason why is sweating is a way to cool your body off, so you don't want to get overheated. We want to maintain that core body temperature. Now, why there is a little bit of natural sweat that happens throughout every day, I'm talking about the sweat you really notice. It's going to leave marks. You're going to feel it dripping. Your shirt starts to feel sticky. Now, this can be difficult in some areas where the humidity is high. So try it in an indoor environment or maybe try it in that environment where the humidity is high and figure out where it is that you can tell the difference between what humidity does to you and what your body starts to create itself based on its activity. Because while that does cool your body off and lower your core body temperature, it also takes fluids, salts, electrolytes, and minerals away. And it's something else we try to keep in our body as long as possible. Now, this might only affect you in the short term for a few minutes, but it could be life-changing. Now, of course, these exercises are based totally on the gray man concept of people in those environments where they want to get in, get out, survive, move on to the next thing. Um, so, you know, this may not apply to you, and I understand that. But something that may apply to you is going on the idea that it's not about standing your ground. Okay, this isn't about a home invasion. It's not about our egos or our perceived ability of what we can do in a bad situation. The whole thing is escape and evade, escape and evade. One of the things to do that you can do for situational awareness is think about the bad things that happen. Now, maybe they're in your area or maybe you only see them on your news. We mentioned school shootings before. We know there's home invasions in this country. We know in some places there's drive-by shootings. There's physical altercations and attack. You may have something locally in your community that happens on a regular basis of violence. Maybe it's just in your city or town and it's not an area you go, but you never know. Maybe one day you're there. Maybe one day the bad stuff moves to you. How are you going to escape and evade? So one of the things we want to look at is an indoor place because most people are indoors most of the time unless they have a job that's consistently outdoors for more than 12 hours a day. Most of us are going to be indoors somewhere most of the time. First thing is get familiar with your own surroundings, your own house, your own businesses, and you can do that based on what I'm about to say now. Let's look at places that we go, whether it's frequent or infrequent, say a church or other religious facility, a grocery store, a restaurant, could be um, 
a community center, movie theater, any of these types of places. could even be a football stadium, which is pretty big to do this in. But let's start with something small like a restaurant or a grocery store. One of the things that happens when a gray man goes into these locations is they're looking for the three things that matter most to them if something were to happen. And number one is escape routes, the way out. They're not looking for ways to fight or to defend themselves yet because if they can get away from it, they don't have to worry about it and they can go do whatever they need to do. So you're always looking for an escape route. Now, not all locations are going to have a back door, but a department store, a grocery store, any place where trucks will bring merchandise in, they're going to have a back door because they're going to have loading docks. Docks might be open. They may not be open. There might be different sizes of doors, but they're definitely back there, which means there's a door, at least one somewhere to get you into that area. And if there's loading docks, there'll be at least one actual door for a person to walk through in those areas. So in a grocery store, department store, most likely those will be there. Restaurants probably have those too, whether they have a loading dock or back door or fire escape area, a door for emergencies. Some of them tend to have doors like that for the workers to come in so they don't have to go through the main area of the restaurant, depending on what the restaurant's like. Some of these are easy to find. Like say it's a fast food place. You don't need to look for them on the inside. You look for them on the outside because you can drive through by the drive through area and see whether or not there's a door there. Now, these are locations where when we visit them, we tend to be in motion, moving around. You know, if it's a clothing store, you're moving and stopping. If it's a grocery store, you're moving and stopping. But a restaurant, you're pretty much stopping. And you always people all the time, oh, I want to sit with, uh, you know, in the center and see everything. Or I want to sit with my back against the wall. It's not really typically the most secure area how this is done. People that sit their backs against the wall either believe that's the right thing to do and think they have some knowledge or experience, or it's people that have been in very hostile, typically warlike environments that definitely don't want anything behind them. But those actually aren't the best places to always sit. What I suggest, though, is that if you have the option, you try to sit somewhere where, depending on the shape of the building that you're in, you have a good view of at least one section on one side. Um, a lot of restaurants have very similar layouts, depending on the type of restaurant. Like a lot of dimers are very similar. A lot of like steakhouse places are very similar. And you try to get over to that area and figure out what's over there. Where are the bathrooms? Can I see the bathrooms? What windows are here? Is there doors? Some of these restaurants, when you go to them, you'll see multiple doors, but they never have one open. They always have it blocked off or locked, but it's a fire escape. And you identify where those are. Then what you do is, as soon as you can, you excuse yourself to the restroom or find a reason to walk back to another side of the restaurant if you're by the restrooms. Like, oh, I'm going to go look over here and see how much space there is. Um, or can I go see that area in case my business wants to have a conference here? Anything you need to do to get over there. So you can get a good walkthrough of the building and you look for any other exits. And depending on the type of restaurant and whether or not you can see in the back of it or where the cooks are, you may see other doors or other areas. And this is how we find the different possible escape routes. And then you look at them again on your way back because you want to look at them from both directions. The reason we do this is safety. Most people in a bad situation like that only know one exit and that's the one they came through as the entrance and they all rush for it. It's human nature. They don't know they have other options and you want to know where those options are. You don't want to get caught in the struggle. You don't want to get caught and trampled and you don't want to try to go out the main front door if something bad's coming in the main front door you want to way out of there and that's what you try to do to identify those locations the next thing that happens that they look for is if they had to fight they look for a weapon now weapons can be offensive and defensive regardless of what their designs for they can be both 
So you got to think, well, what kind of weapons do I have? You could look around where you're at right now and identify weapons. You could think about being in a restaurant and identify weapons. But the thing is, if you don't know how to use them, they're not a weapon to you. People all the time think, oh, there's a fork. There's a butter knife. Um, there's a steak knife. That's a weapon. Yeah, for somebody, but is it for you? Are you a trained knife fighter? Do you practice Kali or Eskrima or working with small edged or unedged weapons? Do you regularly do that and participate in those types of self-defense classes? If not, you're probably only going to get yourself hurt. The other thing is people always look more towards what's the offensive side. They don't think about the defensive side. Like, what about a shield? Like the table in the restaurant you're in, what's it made out of? Can it be moved and flipped over? Do you think it might be thick enough to stop bullets potentially? Or the chairs, if you're sitting in chairs or in a booth, can you use the chair as a shield? Or perhaps pick it up and swing it at somebody's weapon. Almost anybody can do that. Or if you have booths, yeah, they're big, thick, comfy diner booths. But what's really in there? If it's just stuffing, then they're not going to stop much. You also want to look at common everyday materials you don't think of. Uh, one I always use in is an example are magazines. Magazines have a couple of great features. One is just because of the way they're made and the thicknesses of the papers in them. If you roll them up really tight, even if you're not able to tape them, they're pretty strong and pretty solid and they really hurt. And they can be used as a weapon if you know how to use them. Another thing that can happen, not that you're necessarily going to do this when you're out on the town, but you can take magazines and duct tape and tape them down to your arms and your limbs to use as some sort of protection if you were to need it. Now, obviously, I don't think you're going to do this in a restaurant, but just thought I'd mention it so that you realize there's more than one option on what you can use. You just have to be creative with it. Now, let's look at a grocery store. Cans, soups, tuna, whatever heavy, somewhat roundish, metal, they'll hurt. You just need to be able to know how to throw. You don't have to throw a football 50 yards. You definitely don't have to throw a baseball to the pitcher's mound. You just need to have a natural ability to make the step and throw potentially rapidly. Because even if you're not hitting your target, if they're coming at them fast, people are going to act in a defensive nature. They don't want to get hit by those. They're going to put their hands up. They're going to try to get out of the way, and that's going to give you the opportunity to escape. So think about the areas you are. What are things you could pick up and throw easier? You know, what could you possibly do? Do you really want to try to pick up a fork and a knife at a restaurant to fight somebody? You know, do you really think that's going to work out for you? Or do you want to pick up the glass, the salt shaker, the pepper shaker, the hot sauce bottle, and throw them at them quickly to give yourself a couple of seconds or somebody else a couple of seconds to get away? So we got... Escape routes, potential weapons, which also includes defensive items. Then you're really starting to work and you're looking for the threats. Now, while we're always thinking people, there are other types of threats. For example, something loud happens in the kitchen. Is a fire going to start? Was there a car wreck outside? We hear sirens getting louder and getting closer. Those are all things we want to pay attention to to see how they're going to affect our life at that time. But we're specifically also looking at people. So you want to constantly be looking for those potential threats without looking like you're doing it. Everything has to be natural. Threats typically stand out and are out of place. I mean, if you just look at some of the things like, uh, you know, the kid comes to high school and he's carrying that way too big a bag or military style duffel bag. And that actually happened in one of the shootings once. What about the people that are wearing way too many coats and sweaters and layers in the wrong part of the country at the wrong weather, the wrong time? Why do they have that many clothes on? Or when I was in the Middle East, there's times we'd see women that were suicide bombers and how we determined that was we could tell by their face or if we couldn't see their face or their neck, we could see enough of their hands and their arms on occasion. 
we could tell that they were fairly splendor and petite, but they had this abnormal bulge and stuff about them in their midsections. A lot of times it turned out they were just smuggling things, but nobody thought too much into that when they strapped all that stuff on that woman and figuring out what they could do. It's the same thing like down here in Arizona, we got the Border Patrol checkpoints and a lot of the people they catch are in nicer, newer cars. It's the things that stand out or out of place that look suspicious. If two or three people from Mexico drive up on the weekend in a truck that's a little beat up and they're going uh, grocery shopping or say they're going garage sailing, which is pretty common, that won't necessarily look out of place. That's pretty common. They come here, they hit things up, they load up the truck, they go back down to Mexico, and then they sell it. Now, what happens when you get a couple of guys like that coming up from Mexico, pretty disheveled, dirty, haven't cleaned or shaven, um, kind of got some ratty, nasty clothes, maybe you can even smell them, and then they're driving a $60,000 BMW, which has happened. Those guys get pulled over because they don't match that situation in that vehicle, and typically they're smuggling. Now, a lot of times out in public in our everyday life, there are indicators that are that obvious. In fact, a lot of times when law enforcement or even the military watches surveillance video after a fact, they find it determined that there were a lot of indicators that just nobody saw them. Not that it's anybody's fault, because you can't see everything all the time, and most people don't know what to look for. But there are always indicators. It's just looking for something that's out of place. One of the ways that this can be done is you can say, if I was a bad guy, going to do bad things to nice people, and I was going to do it here, how would I do it? And you think that through. Now, granted, you could have a different effect here based on your level of training or knowledge. But if you are somewhat of an expert in certain areas where you think this through, focus in on the areas you're not an expert in, or what do you think most people would do? And how would I come through here? What would I be carrying? How would I hide this? You know, that's the kind of thing you want to look for. Why is it if somebody goes to a hotel in a place like Vegas and they always check their luggage when they got a bunch, but they got one piece of luggage they don't want to let go and they get real grabby with it and angry if somebody touches it to try to take it out of their hand. They weren't very gray. That's noticeable. There's something in there they don't want to mess with. Does that mean it's a threat? No, it might be a bunch of money for all we know. It could be important business papers, but it stands out and that's what you want to look for. What are the things that stand out and how much longer do I need to pay attention to them? Another thing you can do is looking in the shadows. Now, obviously, you can't actually look at the shadows, but most of what I'm describing, we're basing this off a typical urban type environment, whether it's a city, a town, whatever, places with buildings and structures. So it's more of a metaphor. But when I train guys in military tactics, one of the things I do, which is really easy to do in Arizona with the sun, is I have them look up at the shadows and I point out things to them. And so... For those of you who don't have this type of environment, or you can probably picture it, picture a hillside, sparse trees, some grasses, or maybe some, you know, couple foot tall, dried up kind of wild flowers and weeds or whatever. The sun shining and some of that cast small amounts of shadow. I tell them to look up there and I say, the first thing you look at are these wide open grassy areas. The reason why is it's the brightest. It's what your eye is attracted to. It's the biggest. It's the most obvious. And your eye just naturally picks it up. Then you might start focusing on the trees and you might look around the trees. And a lot of you do it because of video games if you're looking for a bad guy. Or it's just what's easier to see because it's got some light coming through the background. Then I tell them, but what you want to do, start looking at the base of the trees. Like if there was a bad guy there with a rifle laying down, 
look down there for any movement. And then I tell them in that environment, in nature, there's not too many things that have curves to them, like a turtle. That's a, you know, it's, it's very limited. Most things have irregular shapes. So is there anything that stands out that's too smooth and too curved based on the distance it's at? Then I have them start looking in the shadows. And then I remind them at nighttime, depending on the moonlight, you also have to pay attention to the shadows because people will go into the moonlight shadows. Taking that idea and put it into an urban environment, where are the places you would move through there if you didn't want to be seen? Even if you don't know what you're doing, that's fine. Picture it in your head. Look at it. How would I move through here? Or if you're sitting down, let's say at a bar, and the bar has any amount of mirrors in it where you can see behind you. Look back there while you're having a drink. How would you move through the crowd? Where would somebody go? What would be a good place to escape from? What would be a good way to look for somebody that's a threat? Where are people sitting? Who are the guys that are sitting with their backs against the wall watching the room? Why are they doing that? How are these people dressed? Does that fit into this environment? Ask yourself those questions. Take a look at them. Another thing, too, when you're doing situation awareness on people, always look at their shoes. The one thing people don't change when they're changing their appearance or trying to pretend to be something they're not is they often don't change their footwear. And a lot of times you can't if you're on the run, but look at their footwear and also look at their nails in their hands, especially if they're men, but women as well. There are men that get manicures. If some guy, even if he has dress shoes, but let's say leather might be a little chipped, if it even is leather, they're pretty dirty. You know, they're not necessarily muddy, but they definitely don't look like they're well kept for. And you notice they got their clothing is clean and nice. Looks like they look work in an office. Looks like a suit. Maybe you can't tell if a suit's the type of suit that would be expensive. And then you look at their hands and they're a little rough. Their nails aren't manicured and maybe they got dirt under there. Those people are out of place. Now, it doesn't mean they're a threat. You, of course, want to pay attention to them. But what are they doing? Now, if they're having Valentine's Day dinner or taking somebody out on a date... They might be trying to dress themselves up to look good. That's not uncommon. But that's an example of something that's out of place that you got to look for when you're trying to maintain the awareness of your surroundings. Let's use a bar as an example. If you're at a bar long enough, unless it's a really high-end bar, but it can still happen there. If you're there long enough, eventually somebody or a lot of somebody's are going to get really drunk, belligerent to the point of almost getting thrown out or at least being loud and obnoxious. I'm sure most of us have seen those situations. And people watch the guy. Maybe somebody tries to intervene. But it's the biggest, loudest, most obvious thing. People are drawn to that. Using that example, what I do, I don't even pay attention to that guy unless he gets close to me. I watch the people that are watching him. And I ask myself questions like, who's about to punch this guy? Is this guy with one of these people? Who is getting ready to complain? Who's going to leave the bar because of this guy? Who's relocating in the bar? Who's laughing at him? If these people are paying attention to them, then I look and say, okay, I got these people paying attention to this guy doing these things as I just described to you. Then I go, who's paying attention to them that's not paying attention to the guy? And I look for those people. And I try to work the room that way and find out what's everybody actually paying attention to. Because almost everybody can only pay attention to one thing at a time. Very rarely two if they switch back off and on and you try to notice them. Now in this situation where you got this loud obnoxious guy and he's drawing a big portion of the bar, who's totally not paying attention to that guy? Now, Today's day, somebody's on their phone. Yeah, they're probably too engrossed in Farmville or whatever they're doing to pay attention. At that point, somebody who's not paying attention to them, if a lot of people are, they're the ones to stand out. And then you get to ask yourself, why aren't they paying attention? Why are they ignoring them? Are they making faces? If they're acting like it's not even happening, what is going on with this person? 
because now that person who didn't stand out two minutes ago stands out like a bright strobe light now. Now I'm bringing up different examples and trying to get you to visualize them because you've either been in these situations or perhaps you will or in something you compare to it so that you have a practical exercise to apply yourself, whether it's the simple, am I getting dehydrated at home up to watching weirdos in a bar? And it's like anything, it takes practice. Simply hearing this or just knowing about it or reading an article doesn't make you even capable of doing it, number one, or at least constantly. You might do it intermittently, but it takes a lot of practice. And like anything, with enough practice, it can become second nature and natural to the point that it frees up your mind to pick up on more stuff while certain things just come quickly or very obviously to you. I'm sure everybody out there has something like that. Here's a good example too. Let's say we got somebody on here that's a parent. Maybe you're a parent who spends a lot of time home alone with your kids. Maybe you don't. You got one or more kids. Maybe you don't have kids, but I think we've all heard this from somebody. We've read it somewhere in a joke. Perhaps we saw it on a TV show about how the parents or the mom, somebody's at home, they're doing their thing, making dinner, they're, whatever they're doing. All of a sudden they're like, it's suspiciously quiet. And they realize that the kids are doing something or something's happening and they go look for them. Now, one of the things they don't point out in those situations is it's not like they were actively consciously aware that they could hear the children. They are trained and in tune to the exposure and experience and the repetition of it that those children make a certain amount of noise and they have learned or have suspicions that when they don't hear that noise, their brain clicks on, their consciousness becomes alive and they're like, here, we got a problem. That is just another example of situational awareness. You want to get to the point to where you're not consciously thinking or recognizing the fact that you're hearing the kids, but you know something normal is going on or you recognize what's going on and then it clicks. Hey, this is abnormal. And that's a good example of situational awareness. The other thing too, is that's an example of listening to two things at the same time. This is presuming, of course, the person's involved in conversation or listening to TV or the radio, but they're also hearing their children. And there's ways that you can practice this. On the Gray Man Concept shows, I always use restaurants. Typically, I use a Chili's just because of the layout. But you want to go to a place that people talk. So I always recommend a restaurant or a restaurant that has a bar area because you can always hear noise. Yeah, the TV might have some noise, but you can hear people in the restaurant, in your area. You can hear the servers. There is verbal activity happening around you. And ideally, what I would suggest you do is sit in a location. And so this is why I use Chili's. Most people are familiar with the layout. But when you go into a Chili's, typically the main restaurant's on the right. And on the left is the bar. And there's just a wide opening to get into the bar area. There's a few tables and booths. Um, if you're not familiar, go there, check it out. You'll see they're pretty much the same. First thing I tell people is to sit in one of the booths. Now, the main reason to do this is because one of your ears is going to be oriented right to a wall where there's no source of sound coming. Sure, there'll be some reflections. and It'll be a lot more if you're sitting by a window. But that lets another ear be focused towards the main room where the sound is coming from. So your brain is naturally going to focus more on that ear because it's picking up more stuff a lot stronger because it's the main input. And what you're doing at this point is trying to focus on the different sounds and trying to figure out where people are at based on the sound. So first thing you want to do when you try this is you want to orient yourself to the room and people to you. So I recommend that you sit there completely squared off to the table and not tilting your head 
And it's a lot easier to do if you're alone, so take something or your phone and act like you're reading or doing something, but just don't actually do that. So what you want to do is you're sitting there, and you can pick up the kind of directions like a clock if you're staring at a 12. What direction is this voice coming from? And then what I've had people do in training is sit there with a pen and a piece of paper and kind of draw a clock face like they're doodling and just kind of make tick marks based on where are these people around me. Then I have them actually look and see how close they are. And as they start to hone that ability in, what I have them do is try to figure out, based on that person's voice, how far away from me are they? Now, if you've already looked, that's cheating. So you want to do that one when you haven't looked yet. Just try them both at the same time. How far away are they in feet? And you learn a lot because people speak at different volumes. You know, my voice is a little deeper for some guys, whereas some women's voices can be deep or be high. People talk softly. People talk harshly. You'll start to train your brain for certain types of sound that tend to sound more masculine, tend to sound more feminine, based on their pitch and their timbre and the amount of inflection they put in their voice and whether or not they have an accent or it's a little raspy or they're speaking softly you'll start to naturally be able to really get good estimations on not only where they are around you, but how far away they are. And this is going to train your brain because you don't train your ears. You're training your brain for what your ears are hearing to assess sounds and noises around you and people talking to get a good idea how far away they are. Now, another exercise to do, it's actually better to do in a training environment because we use a situation, a public venue like a restaurant, and everybody's a role player, an instructor, or a student, so that the person practicing these exercises can take notes, and then afterwards they can go work with these people and figure out what was actually being discussed. You go out to a public place, that's just not going to happen. I mean, you can try it with a group of people, but just be careful with this if you're going to take notes. But one of the things you do is using the same situation, same scenario, is you sit more at a, uh, well, let's let's start with the booth to make it easier. We're going to start with the booth. What we're trying to do here is pick one of these conversations to listen to as much as we can, make it not look like we're trying to listen. So you might have to move a little bit more often or reposition your body to look more natural to where your ears oriented to them so you're not just sitting ahead and then turning to you like you're 10 o'clock and just staring at the floor. You don't want to look weird. And trying to track as much as you can about what they're saying, the actual words they're using, what their conversation's about, how well they know each other, how they feel about each other, their emotional tone, and just as deep as you can get into it about that conversation. And that can be difficult to do when you don't have actual people helping you do it. And the other thing is we have a lot of natural biases and think, oh, they're on a date and here's what's happening. That's not what you want to do. You don't want to make assumptions. We're not trying to make assumptions, presumptions, or draw conclusions. You're just trying to track what they're saying. And if you're doing good at that, then you want to add in what's the emotion in their voice? Are they angry? Are they loving? Do they not care? You want to make those assessments based on the sound of their voice, not the words they're using. That's to help train your brain to pick up on tones and what people do when they use their voice to speak, how they're conveying things like feelings and emotion, and then to ignore the actual words being used because that's how you get fooled because that's what a gray man does. So you don't want to do it that way. Focus on the sounds, not the actual words. Now to up the ante, go back to the first one. Sit at one of those little tables that's kind of in the middle of the room area, not somewhere in a booth, somewhere where both ears are exposed to input 
and why your ears are exposed to the input, what you're trying to do is you take your little clock, you draw on a napkin or whatever, and you're trying to do it quicker. You're trying to track where are all these sounds coming from in the room, how far away are they. Then we want to start adding in things we may not have thought about before without looking. Do we think they're male? Do we think they're female? And I don't want to get all this gender identity bullshit in there. Let's just keep it simple. Do I think they're a male voice? Do I think they're a female voice? And then based on that, which most of the time is pretty obvious, guess their age ranges within five to six years. Um, yeah, some of them can be hard to tell. You know, there's people who look older or younger than they are, but try to guess their age ranges. Try to guess their education level. Try to guess what their career field is based on how they're speaking and based on the topics they're using. And then add in all this other stuff about listening to the emotion and the tone, listening to the words they're using. Now, this can get really confusing because you're like, well, how many of these things are going on at once? Well, once you sit there, you draw your little circle, I got this and this, you verify how far away you think people are, maybe you think it's a man or a woman, you're like, all right, I'm getting a little better, I still kind of suck. Then we're going to sit in that same one and just focus on the one conversation because now that one conversation, wherever it is around you, you've got two ears that potentially could pick it up or at least one ear that can pick it up and one ear you're trying not to listen to these other things. You're trying to ignore them to focus on that one area. Now, that seems easy or maybe it seems hard. It's usually one or the other. But the goal is you want to get to the point where you can go to a stadium where sports are happening. And if you think about a sports stadium where people aren't yelling, at the moments they're not yelling, but there's always voices and sound around you. You got the announcers talking. Maybe there's music playing in the background, a commercial on the Jumbotron. You're wanting to be able to sit there. What's nice about that is a huge stadium. You can look anywhere you want, so that's going to look normal. And you're trying to pick up a conversation that's 30 feet away, 20 feet away. And you're like, well, 20 feet ain't that bad. It's a stadium. There's a lot of people between you and 20 feet, and a lot of them are having conversations. So this restaurant idea, which you can do at any location like that, you're training your brain to use your ear and focus on one small area that's a lot smaller than you realize because you're not focusing on where the table is and these people are sitting. You're only focused on that little gap that's called their mouth. And you're going to train your ear to focus on that to where you can actually get past other sounds in front of it. So imagine, because I've done this in training too, imagine that table with two people are 15 feet away. But let's say that's one long row of the same table and there's four other sets of people between you and them. And you have to figure out how to train your ear to get past as many of them you can to hear as much accuracy for a conversation that's three or four layers deep. So that's kind of your goal. That's why you're starting small and you're trying to get to this bigger goal to get down there farther. Now, this takes a lot of training, a lot of practice, and a lot of people don't have this time, but you might find this unique. You might find it a little fun and definitely learn some things about yourself. And you can really practice this anywhere at any time and try different environments. Try loud ones. Try quiet ones like libraries or bookstore. You go into a Barnes & Noble, you know, a, lot, a lot of people talking, and you'll learn that you could be on the other side of that store 40, 50 feet away, and you might get drawn to the whispers of people that far away that are the only people in there that you naturally wouldn't have picked up before. And it's because you've trained that part of your brain to register that and recognize it. Now, everything that's all cool, what does it do for me? Well, for most people, it's fun. Another thing it's good for is when we talk about going into any place and the three things we look for and the last one being threats, 
your eyes deceive you, although that's how we input most of our information into our head. You can also listen to people around you. You can see who's about to get in a fight. You know, we notice people in a grocery store because they yell at their kid or they're laughing, but we don't pay attention to all the other people and we're trying to learn how to do that. Because a lot of times when you're out in public, if you're with somebody else, unless they're doing it with you and they know what they're doing, which is extremely rare, a lot of your threat assessment is going to be very, very infrequent with your eyes, but very frequent with your ears. And so that's what you're trying to do. Because the next level of this is whichever one of these you're doing, whether it's visual or with your ears, is getting in a location where you're with somebody. Let's use the example of a date, but it can be anything. You're talking and engaging with them, right? Looking completely normal. Nothing stands out while at the same time observing things visually, picking things up with your ears, listening to them, assessing threats, figuring out what people are talking to without the person you're with having any idea that you're doing it. And in a training environment, that's all graded, evaluated, and assessed. Because you go there, you do those things, then we would leave and we'd go write up these lengthy reports so we'd get graded on could they tell or how well could they tell what we were doing because um, they're instructors, they're looking for it. How well did we do it? How accurate were we? What did we figure out? Because a lot of stuff isn't just a conversation I had with them. We're tracking notes about the person at my seven and my five o'clock and I might not ever get to look at them. And then it's figuring out here's who they think they are. Here's how I think they were sitting. Here's how I think they know each other. Here's what they were talking about. And it gets really deep and involved and it can be an exercise used to train your brain to multitask. Because people say, well, you can't really multitask. Well, maybe it's flipping switches so fast as it seems like it's multitasking, but this can be done. It just takes a lot, a lot of practice. And here's the thing, even with the training, you have to maintain it like anything else. Yeah, you can still use some of it for a good while, but if you don't continually practice it, you won't improve or maintain what you already have. Now, I do want to point out that on the Facebook page for Gray Man Concepts, if you go there, at the time of this recording, I've already put some up and I've got some coming out of the next few days that are training exercises for situational awareness. Some of them are actual videos to watch with different examples or types of games that you can do with kids or with yourself that are really simple. Some you'll recognize and you'll see, oh yeah, that actually does teach me situational awareness. And they are simple things that are done and used. Uh, not quite as in depth of what I've been talking about so far, but if you're coming to this podcast uh, much later than when it was recorded, just go to the Gray Man Concepts Facebook page, go to the videos section, and you're going to want to go to the bottom because at the time of this recording is when I am just started that page up. So I've only got a few videos in there and there'll be some stuff on there for situational awareness. And I believe most of them are labeled situational awareness. You can watch those videos. Those are good videos I recommend. They're just a few minute long clips of training exercises or things to point out what your brain is naturally doing based on what it's being told or what it thinks. Now we've talked about um, our eyes a little bit, and we've talked about hearing. Another one that's actually pretty easy to do is touch, which can be important. And a lot of people have done some of these exercises. You can do these on your own. They're fun to do with other people. Uh, I think you can imagine where this could go. Uh, one exercise that I know kids have done in games, but you can do is where they blindfold you, you stick your hand in a box, and you grab something that you don't know what it is. It's not something you would know what it is but you try to identify it based on the feel. It's the same idea as there's a very similar hearing exercise where somebody uses one or more objects to make a sound, and then you have to guess what they are. 
So if somebody knocks on the wall, you'd actually have to tell them what you think they're knocking with. Or if somebody takes two objects, rubs them together, you have to tell them what you think it is. So another way to do it is to have with the touch is to have instead of you touching something, have somebody touch your skin with something. So I kind of laughed earlier because I was thinking about you're in the bedroom. There's the hot chick. She runs the feather or the leather leather strop and you you know but you you're trying to figure out what those objects are one thing we did in the military a lot of guys have done in the military and some people do now is they would assemble and disassemble and do a function check on a firearm while blindfolded uh, one of the things they did a long time ago at least in one of the special forces courses was put multiple firearm parts in a box and then you had to go in there and assemble them all based on touch while blindfolded or they would do one where they'd say there's five firearms in this box and put them together. And what would happen is a few guys would sit down at the table, they'd all have the identical uh, firearms. And what would happen is some guys would put together five firearms and have some extra pieces and they'd be dismissed while somebody else would put together, say six or seven firearms. And then they would be asked, why'd you put together seven firearms? Well, there were seven in the box. I told you you were five. There were five. There's also having to be two more, which would typically be the right answer. That's another way to do it. Why is this important? Well, it depends on what you want to do. One of the things that I did in training before is I didn't do a lot with lock picking myself, but when we did do some lock picking, a lot of it is based on the sensation and the feel, based on the tools you're using and the tumblers and whatever, just doing basic locks. And a lot of times, you're staring at the lock and not realizing that you think that's going to help you, even though everything's on the inside. So the idea would be in total darkness to pick the lock or to do it blindfolded, to focus more on this feeling of the tools being used and what they're touching. And a lot of people actually improve from it. So that's another way to do it. So there's a lot of different touch exercises. Another thing you can do is learn to um, develop your sense of smell. Um, sometimes people only see this on movies, but somebody smells something and they're like, oh, that's a dead body or, oh, that's something that burned. And it's because in the movie, they're in the job field where they would know that. Um, but you can develop those senses and there's little things you can do to actually increase your sense of smell. One of them is that you can use spices with cooking. And it's kind of interesting, especially if you're not a cook or a chef or you want to use more spices. What you do is you take like vegetables, right? So you take like a zucchini. You know, you cut it, just cut it in half to expose the center. You hold that in one hand, you hold the spice in the other hand. You smell the zucchini, you smell the spice, back to the zucchini, back in the spice. If you do that with a few spices, you'll actually find ones that complement each other. Like, oh, this makes sense. I think these two will go together and you'll find out that'll work. That's one way to learn how to use spices more often or how to mix spices. The other way is just to expose yourself to smells. I've seen situations with people that when they smell a burning fuel, they can tell you what the fuel source is. They can tell you if it's crude oil, if it's kerosene, if it's gasoline, if it's diesel, if it's a jet fuel. There's some people out there have some exposure and realize that or know some of those smells are different. Or, you know, the new car smell. And, you know, they make an air freshener for that. But the air freshener is modeled after that smell. It's not actually an air freshener. And that new car smell is a mix of chemicals used when they put parts of the interiors in the car. That's what that smell is. So what other smells are there and how do you know what they are? Another smell is people that smoke too much or smoke a lot in the same jacket or maybe smoke a lot indoors, you can smell it on them. Or people that smoke a lot of marijuana, like a lot of marijuana, they sweat it out through their pores, you can smell it. 
but those people don't realize it. Or a woman who wears too much perfume. What happens? You can smell it a mile away, but they really can't. Why? It's probably the only perfume they wear. And so over time, they start adding more and more because they want to make sure they can smell it and they don't realize how overpowering it is. That's a good example of how the brain works. More and more things are added on visually or through our senses, through our ears or through our touch or through our smell. And we get somewhat dulled in our senses to it. It's the same thing that happens with marketing and advertising. Our senses get dulled. And the only way it's noticeable is somebody else sees it or somebody else is looking for it. You want to be the person looking for it that sees it. You don't want to be the person whose senses are dulled because you're not honing them and you're giving off all this whatever stuff you don't want to give off. Or even if you're not doing that, you're not noticing the other things that can matter that could affect your life. One of the other hearing things that's so much fascinating is music, especially if anybody out there is a musician. Uh, get good enough, they can actually tell what key a song's in or what notes they're using, they can figure it out by sound because their ears are trained for it. Now, granted, some people have some natural gifts in some areas that others don't, but they're able to do this. But actually, it goes so far, I guess, to the place where some musicians describe certain sounds or people's playing styles. They don't describe them as a sound. They describe them visually as a color. Like this person plays fairly orange. Um, which, if you're not familiar with that, you should definitely look into it or talk to somebody who's a musician. And if you are a musician, the sound exercises will probably be a little easier to you. Artists actually have a more successful chance at grasping situational awareness and learning it very well. A lot of people that have artist's eyes or an artist's ears tend to be able to differentiate things like colors and sounds and look for things and meaning behind stuff without getting all philosophical or biased on it and tend to do well. It's the people that tend to be very strict, logical thought by the book, have to have a list, things by the numbers. They can learn it very clinically and academically, but they tend not to perform it well or do as well. That doesn't mean that these are going to hold truth for you, whatever kind of person you are. But there are things to be aware of. So if you're going to practice some of this stuff, part of it is to talk to people that are any type of artist or exposure to art, or any of the arts that can try to explain to you what they do and how they see things or how they interpret things. It might help you understand. It may not, but it's definitely another source and way to go. Now, if you're a person who's wondering, what's the point of all this situational awareness stuff? Well, part of what I said in the beginning is true. The whole assessing the threat, escape and evade, avoiding a situation, having available weapons or defense items if you need to pretend you protect yourself like a gray man would. That's part of it. But another part of it, too, is everything is a constant assessment. That's what situational awareness is. You're using all this information that you're paying attention to that you normally don't to predict future events. So think about the people we talked about in the beginning that could turn out to be a potential threat. You're able to identify them and predict future events. Two of them, potentially what they'll do, but also how you'll react so that you can have that planned and ready to go and perhaps even initiate what you're going to do early to avoid any bad situation. It's the same idea as going to a ball game and realizing yeah, this game's pretty much over, so I'm going to beat the crowd, go get the car. I'll listen to it on the radio and some crazy happens, but it probably won't. That's all it is. It's the same thing to predict possible events, the most likely outcomes, and to act accordingly even early just to be safe or to evade the situation or to warn others. Having this type of awareness isn't just a cool thing to do. It's to help you choose where you're going to go, what you're going to say, how you're going to act, how you're going to behave. Am I going to avoid this area? Am I going to go to this area? 
And a lot of this we do naturally anyway. Some of it's by virtue of instincts. And a lot of your instincts, we call them instincts, it's your brain subconsciously doing things that you don't realize you know how to do. Some of it's situational awareness. You know, instincts, that gut feeling, that's your brain doing calculations that your conscience isn't caught up to yet because your brain has learned a lot of things that you don't necessarily have an instant recall on. That's all it is. Another part of your consciousness that you don't always track, that's your gut feeling or intuition, a lot of it's body language. One of the things in the article I put up and when I discuss body language, we'll be explaining that depending on the study you read, roughly 70%, give or take, of all communication is nonverbal. That's body language. Your brain is picking that up, whether you've been taught to do it or not. That's what all these things are. And if you learn these skills and situational awareness and body language, which we'll get into on another show, and analyzing language patterns, neurolinguistics, IXS queuing, and all these different things, you'll have skills and abilities above probably 98, 99% of the population, realistically. You'll be able to do things, know things, figure things out. It won't just be the safety and security aspect like I talk about at the beginning of this because it's the gray man thing. Think about the other things you could do. What about the next time you buy a car where you can assess an individual, their situation, how they're acting, use the body language, get a better deal? What about that? How about the time you get in a situation that's altercation or an accident that's unplanned and there's another person there that's irate or out of control and you're able to use all these skills in the buildings to de-escalate and calm them down so nothing else happens? Or perhaps... You're in a situation where something happens, the adrenaline's rushing, the fear, the reaction, the hypervigilance, and you're able to calm yourself down. How about what if you're the type of person that with most people or just with a select few in your life, you have reactions when they have reactions. They get upset, you get upset. They get happy, you get happy. They get fearful, you get fearful. They get any emotional, you just get pissed off. But you're able to recognize these things and why you'll not only be able to possibly de-escalate that situation and get yourself under control and figure you could figure out what's going on a lot easier. Maybe you can help them find a solutions and improve your life. So situational awareness and all these other skills that we'll talk about are in use all the time. You just don't realize it. And they can affect so much more your quality of life than just simply being this cool little stuff that spies do or, you know, experts in body language do. Imagine being on a jury. Can you believe what that would be like Who cares what the judge says? Who cares what questions are asked or what these people say? If you have the ability to maintain situational aware, where you can hear what's going on, hear the questions being asked, completely dissect those based on the language choices to see what they're doing and if they really are good questions and how they're using for or against their own bias, because that's it's a bias. It's one bias side versus another. You're reading body language. You're paying attention to the judge's reactions. You're paying attention to the lawyer, defendant or the prosecutor's reactions, whoever it is, you might possibly come up with a completely different answer, a completely different thought process on why a situation may or may not be guilty that might go against the rest of the jurors. You could actually change the outcome. Imagine what that would be like. So there's a lot of facets and things in life this can apply to. Don't just write it off as some silly thing and definitely look into it. I want to thank you again for being here if you're still listening. Definitely let me know, send me messages, comment on this video on Facebook or on Twitter, wherever you're at. Check the links below for other shows and things that you can watch. And we'll definitely be here again soon. And we'll talk about another good subject and see where we can keep going with this and what other skills and abilities we can learn to be more like a gray man, hide in place sight, and definitely not leave an impression when we don't want to in order to enhance our lives, be safe and secure. 
and for whatever else reason, even if you're doing it for fun. Thank you, and I look forward to seeing you again next time.